following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in uh, the book of Judges, uh, this uh, book in the Old Testament. So if you have the book of Judges, uh, you can open that up and, and the words will be on screen here. And this morning we're in Judges chapter 3. And this is really, I think, the most gruesome, grotesque, grisly, gross story probably in the whole book. So now that I've got your attention, uh, Judges chapter 3, um, boost kids, you probably won't even need an activity pack this morning. This is going <laughs> to, everything you need is going to be right here. Okay, Judges 3 verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram Nahariam, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to King Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute... He dismissed those who had carried it, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. 
Well, this is the Word of the Lord. (laughs) Believe it or not, all Scripture is inspired by God, right? Some passages seem to put that theory to the test, but here we are. This stuff is actually in the Bible. It's actually the written, revealed Word of God. So we have in this story... In this chapter, the stories of the first three judges in Israel's history. We have Othniel, the first judge, then Ehud, who gets most of the chapter, and then this tiny little bit about Shamgar right at the end. He only gets one tiny little verse. Othniel, just to back up at the beginning of the chapter, Othniel is a very straightforward account of what happens here. He's he's a very uh, standard kind of guy. He's got a great pedigree. He's Caleb's uh, nephew. Caleb, remember, being the colleague of Joshua, led Israel into the promised land. Othniel's full of the Spirit of God. God uses him to deliver, deliver Israel, and the land has peace for the whole duration of Othniel's life. It's textbook stuff. It's very normal. It's ordinary. It's straightforward. It's exactly what we'd expect to do, God to do, right? Uh, and then I think in some ways the Othniel story is really there just to draw a contrast with what comes next. Because just when you think you've got an idea of how these cycles are going to go, you get Ehud, the story of Ehud. And whatever you thought about the way God works based on Othniel gets completely thrown out in the story of Ehud. It's bizarre, it's disturbing, it's confusing, it's embarrassing, it's grotesque, it's got a bit of everything for everyone. Now, the story of Ehud begins, as all these cycles and judges do, with Israel doing evil in the eyes of God. They forsake their allegiance to God and they go off and serve the the, the gods of the culture around them, these Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. And so in response to that, God gives Israel over to another nation. He allows them to be conquered by another nation. And this time it's Moab, verse 12. He gives the Israelites over to the king of Moab, who was this guy called Eglon. And all we really know about Eglon is that he was extremely fat. That's the only detail we get, and that's really the only one we need. And that becomes important later in the story. Uh, But even though this, this king probably wasn't up to much fighting, he obviously had a pretty impressive army. And they managed to overrun the Israelites and overpower them. And there's an interesting detail in the text in verse 13. It talks about the Moabites taking possession of the city of Palms. Anyone know what the city of Palms is, another name for? Jericho. You might have it in the margin somewhere in your Bibles. The city of Palms is the city of Jericho. What's the first city that Israel took control of when they crossed over the Jordan River in Joshua? Jericho. See, the whole book of Judges is is a systematic reversal of what has happened in the book of Joshua. Israel took the city of Jericho, they conquered it in this miraculous way, marching around the the city, blowing the trumpets. God delivered them dramatically and took the city dramatically. And now one of the first things that happens in the book of Judges is Jericho's taken from them, stripped away. They lose the city. They lose this land and they become a subject people. Israel becomes an occupied, subjected people at the hands of this King Eglon. So they really, their fortunes are reversed here, and they're in a bad place. And from that place of servitude and oppression, Israel cries out to God in verse 15. The Israelites cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and he gave them a deliverer, a guy named Ehud. He's an interesting guy, this Ehud. He's a lefty. Hands up, lefties. Yes, left hand, of course. Hey, left hand, lefties. Yes, this is our guy, right? This is our story in the Bible. This is our day. This is our sermon. It's the left-handed guy who comes through. Everyone in the Bible seems to be right-handed. Even God seems to be right-handed. He keeps stretching out his right hand for some reason. But Ehud is left-handed. He's a lefty. Uh, Unfortunately, back in these days, left-handedness 
was not uh, looked very highly upon. I don't know why. Unlike today, where it's clearly a sign of superiority, <laughs> back in these days, uh, it was a little bit abnormal. It was a little bit strange to be left-handed, and right-handedness was very normal and, and the way it should be. Uh, and left-handedness was just this kind of weird thing that some people were afflicted with. So he, he already has some social stigma here by virtue of the fact that he's a lefty. But there's an interesting uh, detail in this verse 15. that The phrase that in English is translated, a left-handed man, you'll have something similar to that in your text, a left-handed man, literally in Hebrew, that says, a man impotent with his right hand, or a man bound with the right hand. So, many commentators suggest that Ehud's not left-handed simply because he has a natural proclivity towards his left hand. He's left-handed because he has a disability in his right hand. Maybe his right hand's withered, maybe he's had an injury, he, he may not have the use of his right arm at all. So he is forced to be left-handed. It's an incredible thing. that One of the first judges that God raises up to deliver Israel is a disabled man. Isn't that interesting? It's a gr- isn't this an incredible story? This is God. This is what God does. Gives a disabled deliverer to his people. And you know what Ehud's name means? Where is the splendor? Great, isn't it? Where is the splendor? His name means a question. Where is the splendor? And that question, that phrase, has all kinds of overtones of meaning all the way through the story. It's so loaded up. Where is the splendor is exactly the question Israel's been asking for 18 years. They're oppressed. Jericho's been taken. They've lost the land that God just gave them. They're oppressed and dominated and cruelly treated. And they're crying out, where is your splendor, God? Where is it? We don't see the glory. Where's your majesty? Doesn't look like this. We're subject to King Eglon. Where is the splendor? And God is going to reveal it. God is going to show them exactly where his splendor is, and he's going to do it through disability. So he raises up Ehud. And Ehud's job was to take this tribute to King Eglon. This was just standard part of being a subject people. You had to go and pay financial tribute, which would have been a big economic burden placed upon Israel that they had to keep on giving these financial offerings to the king. So Ehud's chosen to do this. He takes along a few companions and he goes to the palace of King Eglon. But before he goes, he takes a sword and straps it to his right thigh. The sword, the length of the sword, is about 45 centimeters, about from your elbow to your knuckles. So it's quite a short sword. He's got the short sword so that it's, it's deadly, but it's concealed. It's not going to be detected. Straps it to his right thigh, and off they go to visit the king. They get to the palace of King Eglon, and probably the king would have had some bodyguards there. These bodyguards would have been trained mainly to look for concealed objects and weapons, particularly on the left, on the left side of people, because they would have assumed most people were right-handed. So they would have looked for any bulges, unusual objects, but probably wouldn't have taken much notice of Ehud's right side. So he gets in, he gets past security. And Ehud and his companions are there in the presence of King Eglon, and they present this tribute, this financial offering to the king. And then they leave. They actually go away, out of the king's presence the first time. And off they go until they get to a place called Gilgal, where they come across these carved stone images Probably these carved stone images were idols. They were probably idols of the kinds of gods that Eglon and the Moabites worshipped. 
these foreign pagan gods who weren't really gods at all. But when you think about it, this is a very strategic place for Ehud to stop because he's going to return and tell Eglon that he's got a secret message from God. What better place to get such a message than in front of these idols that Eglon would have recognized and worshipped? I don't think he's going back to tell Eglon that he's got a message from Yahweh, Israel's God. He's going to tell Eglon that he's got a message from one of these Canaanite gods, Asherah, Baal, whoever. And so he receives this so-called message at the stone idols. And at that point, he sends his companions on, away the other Israelites, back to their homes. And Ehud himself turns back to the king, back to the palace, and he goes back. And he announces when he gets back there that he has got a secret message for the king. He's received this oracle, this message to give. And that seems convincing enough, so he's led into the king's presence. By this time, the king is in his upper room. It's a room off the main chamber that Ehud would have been in. He would have had private meetings there. Cool upper room. And Ehud is ushered into the presence of the king. Now, the next thing he's got to do is he's got to get Eglon alone by himself. So he announces to Eglon that he has a secret message for him. I mean, Eglon seems like a pretty gullible guy, doesn't he? You have to admit, I mean, how naive do you have to be? But he's obviously convinced. Ehud was very persuasive. Eglon genuinely believes there's a secret message here that is only for my ears, and so he sends his attendants away. Now Ehud's got the king on his own by himself. And the last thing he has to do is get Eglon to stand up. And so he draws near to the king and he says, I have a secret message from God for you. And Eglon, this can't have been easy for him to do, but he gets up on his feet. And then the action, it's almost slow motion the way the story's told. Ehud quickly reaches with his left hand, draws the sword from his right thigh, plunges it into the belly of King Eglon so far that the sword disappears. The fat covers over the handle and Eglon's bowels discharge. This is the word of the Lord. This is grisly. This is grisly stuff, isn't it? Oh, this is gross. This is gross. Are you listening, Boost Kids? This is gross. It is, it is, a, it is a disgusting story. Uh, but Ehud, having, having done this deed, uh, with Eglon lying on the floor now, taking his last breaths, Ehud leaves the upper room. He closes the doors behind him and locks them. And then he would have just left exactly the same way he came. He would have walked straight past those attendants. Didn't need to be secretive because they would have assumed his meeting with the king is finished and now he's letting himself out. So Ehud just gets away, takes off. And the attendants then go and uh, visit the king because, of course, they want to know what the secret message is. What did he say? What's the oracle? What's, what's God said to you? And they get to the upper room and find the doors are locked. And they assume from the locked doors and probably from the smell coming from the inside that he's on the toilet. So they wait. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, until they get to the point of embarrassment. And then they take the key and unlock the doors. They go in, and they find Eglon there lying on the floor dead. By this time, far too late to get Ehud. He's taken off. He's a long way away. He goes to one of the Israelite towns where they're settled, and he blows this great war trumpet, and he announces to Israel, the time's come, now's the time to strike. While Moab is leaderless, while they're confused and in disarray and grieving the loss of their great king, now's the time to strike. Word spreads quickly, the Israelite army is mobilized, and Ehud leads them in this great attack of the Moabites, and they take the, the, the kingdom of Moab. They overrun them, and they take back their land, and they uh, strike down 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one of them escaped. 
They claim back their freedom, claim back the land, and the land has peace for 80 years for the rest of Ehud's life. Well, you can just imagine uh, Israelite families telling that story, can't you? You can imagine Israelite kids telling that story, laughing about oh, King Eglon and talking about how God delivered them. And this would have been a story passed from generation to generation, generation still is. It's part of the fabric of the Jewish tapestry of the way that God has worked to deliver his people. But I imagine that as Jewish families told the story and as they tell it today, that they would be very careful to identify God as the central character in the story. That it's not really about Ehud. It's not really about Eglon. It's about Yahweh and his strange, mysterious ways of doing things. It's a story about God. God's the one, the text says, that raised up Ehud. God gave them this deliverer. And Ehud himself gives the glory back to God. When he summons Israel to battle, he says, The Lord has given Moab into your hands. He points away from himself back to God, makes it very clear, this is God's activity, this is God's mission. Follow me. Why? Because God has given Moab into your hands. This is a story about God and the way in which he delivers his people. And he does it, you have to admit, in a really bizarre way. I mean, we kind of expect Othniel-type stories. That's the way God should work. But so often we get these Ehud-type stories, strange ways in which God works. And again, you're reminded of Ehud's name in that question, where is the splendor? Where, the splendor of God is hard to see sometimes in this story, isn't it? Where is the splendor in this? God raises up a disabled man, uses a plot full of deception, sends him on an assassination, which is grisly and gruesome. Where is the splendor in that? Somehow the splendor of God is revealed in the bizarre, unusual, surprising, even embarrassing details of the story. And it's not the last time God's going to do that. Throughout the book of Judges, God confounds our expectations of the way that he should or could work. He constantly does things out of the box, time and time again, and right down through the whole story of Israel, all the way to Jesus. Jesus is the one who fully reveals the splendor of God. The ultimate answer to the question of Ehud, where is the splendor, is it's in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus fully reveals the splendor of God. And there's a lot of similarities, I think, between Jesus and Ehud. We don't know whether Jesus was left-handed or right-handed, but he did have a disability of some kind. He left his heavenly home, position and advantage and status and glory, and he took on the limitation and the restriction and the weakness of humanity. He lived with that human disability for his earthly life. And that point in the Ehud story where they reach the carved stones and then Ehud sends his companions on, sends them away, and he turns back himself to face the king and return to the king. I can't help hearing in their overtones of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus' followers fall asleep or later they desert him and Jesus alone turns to face his accuser, deserted by everyone else. But of course, Jesus' enemy wasn't Judas it wasn't the Jewish leaders, it wasn't the Romans, it was Satan. And on the cross, in giving his life, Jesus defeated God's ultimate enemy. Just as Ehud defeated the enemy of Israel, Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, dealt a fatal blow to Satan and his authority and his power. He thrust the sword into Satan's belly, so to speak, fully enacting the Ehud story. 
And he dealt a death blow to Satan, robbed him of his power, stripped him of his authority, plundered him of his kingdom, brought him down low and established God's own kingdom. He delivered us. Jesus brought about a far greater deliverance, didn't he, than Ehud did, not just delivering a a, a geographic, physical people, delivering all those who would trust in him for all eternity. Jesus pulled off the greatest deliverance that the world has ever known. But he did it from a cross. He did it through suffering. He did it through shame. Where is the splendor of God? Because if you are disgusted by the Eglon story, you would have been far more disgusted standing at the crucifixion of Jesus and looking at what happened to that man on that cross. That was degrading. It was dehumanizing. It was utterly undignified. It was the most disgusting way a human being could possibly die. Far worse than Eglon's death. And yet in it, the splendor of God is revealed. Where is the splendor? It's in the suffering and the shame of the crucified Messiah. Where is the splendor of God? It's in Jesus writhing in agony on the cross. Stripped naked with blood dripping down his legs. Where is the splendor in that? It's somehow in the midst of that humiliation and that scandal and that shame because God was working through it to bring life and to bring healing, to bring healing for our souls, to bring renewal for humanity and all creation. God revealed his splendor through the shame and the grotesqueness of the cross. And now God, through Jesus, is continuing to reveal his splendor in our lives, in our church, in our community, in all kinds of ways that confound our expectations about how he should work. There's a person in our church who, for me, kind of represents an Ehud-type character. And it's Nahuya. Nahuya Toreri. She's singing this morning on stage. Nahuya shares a similarity with Ehud in that she doesn't have the use of one arm. Nahuya is a righty and Ehud was a lefty. Uh, so they're different in that respect. But, but Nahuya has a similar physical disability. And she's no stranger to struggle. She's had some very hard times in her life. And she continues to face some hard, hard battles. But in that position of weakness... And, and, and physical limitation, the splendor of God just shines out of her. You know this because it shines on you. <laughs> it shines on us, doesn't it? It blesses us. We see the splendor of God revealed through weakness and limitation. And Nahuya is now at Laidlaw College studying. Not that Laidlaw is better than any other place, but she's there. She's on the cover of the prospectus now. There's this photo of Nahuya with coffee looking all studenty. And she's there. She's embedded in the Laidlaw community, she's a go-to person for many of the young women on the campus looking for a wise voice and guidance and counsel for the things they're going through. She's on the student council because of her concern for the student body. Now she's interning at Shaw, and uh, I caught up with her the other week. We had this mentoring meeting, and it's actually quite hard having Nahuya as an in- intern in the church because what do you do, you know? I mean, she said she's interning in the area of pastoral care, and she said to me, this is just what I do. <laughs> it's just what I, it's, it's just who I am. Now, her internships are supposed to be skill-based things where you work on skills and grow and so on. And she's certainly growing and learning things, but it just pours out of her. It's not like she can turn it off. 
She just is a blessing. She, she's, she is an encouragement. Her very presence, her words, her actions, her deeds, she blesses me and many, many of you. The splendor of God revealed through her weakness, maybe because of those weaknesses, the splendor of God just pours forth from her life. God does this, doesn't he? We don't all have that limitation, but we all have our own weaknesses. We've all got struggle. We've all got brokenness and weakness in our life. You may be going through a difficult time. You may be in a place of struggle right now. Your circumstances may be tough. And we tend to assume that God's goal or our goal or whatever is just to sort of get out of this time, get past this struggle because that's where the good things are and God's going to work when he finally delivers me from all this. Maybe God's revealing his splendor right now to you in the middle of the struggle. Maybe it's in the middle of that place of weakness. Maybe it's in the middle of the difficulty that you're going through that God is at work revealing his splendor, revealing his presence, Revealing his glory. What's he doing in it? Look for his hand in it. Don't assume it's just on the other side of it. He's at work now. What's he doing? Maybe he's teaching you to trust. Maybe he's teaching you to rest deeply in his sustaining presence and to cast your anxiety on him because he sustains you. Maybe he's teaching you humility. Maybe he's teaching you that you don't need to establish yourself. But you can, as First Peter says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in his good time. Maybe he's teaching you surrender. He's teaching you that there's an area of your life that he's wanting you to hand over to him. An area that you're holding on to and you're trying to control it. And you're trying to keep your hands on the reins of this thing and God is saying to you, you need to let it go. You need to hand it over. You can't control this, nor should you. You need to let it go. You need to embrace what I'm doing in the middle of this situation of struggle and weakness and brokenness. God's working in it. Pray that he gives you the eyes to see it. See what he's doing. Where is the splendor? And it's not just in weakness or disability. It's all kinds of ways. The Ehud story shows us that God works in unusual ways, surprising ways, weird ways. We've got to start looking for the presence of God and the hand of God in places we never thought to look for it before, right? The other day, I was cleaning up our paddling pool to put it away, and Josh was helping, helping, uh, with the hose, firing the hose everywhere, and I was cleaning the paddling pool and got a bee sting on my hand. Man, I'd forgotten how sore bee stings are. They are painful. And I was having this medical emergency here with the bee sting fixated on my finger, trying to get the sting out, and Josh uh, wanders over, and he very calmly just said, we should pray to God and Jesus. Isn't that lovely? And I was far too concerned with my, my finger crisis going on. I just let that go past and didn't even pick up on it to my shame. And, but later that evening, I, I circled back to it with him and just said, you know, Daddy was really proud of you when um, I got that bee sting and you thought to pray to, you wanted to pray to God and Jesus. It was just so good to, to see that and to hear that, you know. And I think, man... There's, there's a situation, you know, it came and it went and it was sort of bizarre, but God's using my three-year-old son to teach me to pray. That's what he's doing. He's healing my selfishness and self-obsession through my three-year-old son. And where is the splendor of God? It was right there. It was right there in that moment. I want to be more attentive to what God is doing in those kinds of situations. I want to be more focused on what God is doing in ways I'm not expecting him to work. Outside of my normal view of how God does things, I want to be open to seeing his presence and seeing his love and seeing his hand in situations 
is that I've never thought to look for those before. Where is the splendor of God in your life? What's he doing? What's he up to? What's he doing in, in, in the weakness of your life? What's he doing just in the ordinary circumstances? What's he doing even in the strange things, the bizarre things, the embarrassing things? You know, one simple practice that can be helpful here, an ancient, ancient spiritual practice called the prayer of examine, E-X-A-M-E-N. It was developed by uh, St. Ignatius, early church father. It's a very simple thing. It's, it's a daily practice where at the end of each day, you replay the events of that day in a reflective way with God. And with him, you notice the ways in which God has been present in your life through that day. And it just tunes in our conscience to identify God's hand, presence, love, blessing, working, in ways that we'd never normally expect to see it. Because we just don't expect to see it, so we breeze through our day and we're on to the next one. The prayer of examine just slows us down each day long enough to reflect and identify God's splendor in the ordinary events of every day. How did God reveal his splendor in your life yesterday? Just think back over the conversations, think back over the activities that you've been up to. Where is the splendor? I guarantee you it's there. We just don't always have the eyes of faith to see it. The prayer of examine can help. And not only does it tune us into what God has done over the past day, it then stirs our soul to be a little bit more in anticipation that God is going to show up in my day tomorrow and a little bit more willing and able to look for it and see it when it happens. So can I suggest that we use Ehud's name as a question to guide our lives? That question is one we can hold in front of us. Where is the splendor? Israel struggled to see it. We might struggle to see it in the story of Ehud and we might struggle to see it in our lives, but the splendor of God is there and the glory of God is there if we only have the eyes of faith to see it. Let's ask God to make us observant of where his glory and his majesty and his presence are being revealed. And if you can't see it right now, it's okay. Start by looking at the one who embodies the very splendor of God, Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot go wrong there. Start there. If you can't identify the splendor of God, glory of God in your life, start right here with the cross. That's where the splendor of God was most fully and completely revealed. Spend some time centering your mind and your heart around that. And then, in the shadow of the cross, ask God to make known to you the ways in which His splendor and His glory is being revealed all around you in your life and in the lives of people in your world. And you might just start to see the splendor of God in some places you've never seen it before. Let's pray. Father, we just we take a moment to let that question settle on our hearts. We think about our own lives and our experiences, and we ask God, where is the splendor? Where is your splendor in our lives? I pray, Holy Spirit, that now in this room, you would bring into our minds and bring into our hearts some of the ways in which your splendor is being revealed, ways in which we might expect, ways in which we might not expect. Maybe we're just too busy to see it. Maybe we've never thought to look in some areas. Holy Spirit, just bring these ways to our mind. How is your, how is your splendor being revealed in our life right now, in our family relationships, working relationships, the joys in our life, the struggles, the weakness in our life? Unusual things, strange things. God, your splendor is at work. Help us to expect you to work in unexpected ways and to be open enough to see that 
when it happens. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.